Where all my children are the light Born in the sinning But steady striving to do right My people are warriors All we know is to fight Pray they see God and everything I write yeah. Thank you so much, uh, Mr. Chairman It is always a joy to um, partake in the convention of the NAACP I think this is my second event um, Lifelong uh, member, partially by force because of my dad um, and now as an adult, certainly want to be a part and always uh, excited to support what you are doing. And of course, shout out to my brother, the president, Derek Johnson. Um, Senator Harris, it is so great to see you. <laughs> I will refrain from calling you um, Kamala today because I think it's so important that they put some respect on your name. So I'm going to start uh, and lead by example. Um, we know you are in the middle of debate prep. I wish I was in the room with you to give you some one-liners but hopefully uh, we can get you ready and most comfortable today. How are you doing? How are you feeling? I am well, Angela. So good to see you. And, and I just want to thank everybody, Chairman Russell, for that introduction. Thank you for mentioning not only the head of the NAACP, but also my pastor, Dr. Amos Brown. Um, thank you to, to Derek Johnson for your ongoing leadership. We talk so often these days about the importance of everything that is at stake and making sure everyone's voice is heard. So it's good to be with everyone. And Angela, it's so good to see you. And I'm a good, you know, one day at a time, 39 days before an election that will determine the course of, uh, you know, history for, for generations to come. Yeah, it will. And um, with that, I want to start because I know... That part of what's happening in debate prep is they got to get you with rapid rounds. So one of my favorite things to do for the podcast is a rapid round. <laughs> part of that is to just loosen us up and get ready to just dive right in. We want to consider okay. this family talk. So here we go. Let's start. Okay. Okay. So um, you are a proud AKA. How do y'all normally greet each other? Um, with a hug. Uh, it, well, not, but not during COVID. <laughs> Okay, what's the, what do you guys say? What's the little thing you say? Greetings, Soror. <laughs> Thank you. I was looking for a ski week, but I'll, I'll take it. it. You know, when, when you go through the process of becoming one, then we can have that conversation. <laughs> <laughs> not happening. I am black and not Greek. I'm Eddie Rise child. Okay, next one. <laughs> did you know that you and Snoop Dogg share a birthday? I did. Oh, I actually did. Oh. And I talked to him recently um, okay. about voting, actually. Yeah. I love it. Uh -huh. I love it. About vote, you know, all of us voting. Yeah. Uh -huh. Yeah, that's that's really important right now. Yeah. Um, okay, your favorite professor at Howard. Oh Dr. Houchkins. Um, um I I there were so many, but I'll I'll start with him. He was, yeah, he was one of one of the the ones who had been a, a, a real barrier breaker in his own career and life. And, um, but you know, there's so many. And the thing about the professors at Howard is that, you know, they were the best and the brightest in their field. They could have taught anywhere that they wanted to teach, but they chose to teach us. And in that way, really inspired us in ways that um, were very special and, and long lasting. Well, now that Howard has their, yeah. their commercial from this, too, this little plug, we're going to keep going <laughs> rapid round. Okay. Who threw the but best? All, but, all, but let me end all HBCU. That is, but no, truly, that is an HBCU experience yeah. and, and universal in that way. Mm -hmm. Okay. Who threw the best shade during the Democratic primary debates? 
You got to pick one. <laughs> Beside myself. <laughs> okay. Okay. Now you can say yourself. You can say yourself. Okay. What's the first thing you do in the morning? Oh, um, a combination of things. Um, but probably a read is mm-hmm. one of the first things I do. Mm-hmm. Favorite thing to cook? The people don't know you can slay down in the kitchen. What's yes, the- I can. <laughs> a roast chicken. It's kind of my go-to. Uh-huh. And then uh, best rapper alive? Tupac. <laughs> He's not alive. You say he lives on. Well, not alive. Lives- I know. I keep doing <laughs> You said Listen, West Coast girls think Tupac lives on. I'm with you. I'm with you. So Tupac, keep going. Keep, keep doing that. Um, who would I say? I mean, there's so many. I mean, you know, it. I. There are some that I I I would not mention right now because they should stay in their lane, but um, others I. <laughs> I what that going. means? I want to know who one of those are. Keep moving. Okay, all Keep right. moving, Angela. All right, I didn't. That was not supposed to be a stumper either. What about uh-huh. um? Okay, AK was founded when and where? In 1908 at Howard University. Another plug for Howard. Okay, person who you would fangirl over the most if you met them right now? Oh, Angela, why are you doing this to me? (laughs) (laughs) Um, The person I would fangirl the most... um, I don't know, Beyonce... Okay, Beyonce. Mm-hmm. And then what about the last person you called? Who's the last person you called? Um, the last person I called on the phone was um, my assistant. <laughs> to ask like, him I, I running on time or not. Order. <laughs> I hear that. Okay, the last thing I want to tell you is, did you know, this is my last rapid round, did you know okay. that Mina, Mina just made gumbo and made the base, the roux, with chickpea flour. Oh, goodness, I did not know that. <laughs> I, I did I not do that. need to do that, though. See, this is, there are certain things you just don't need to change. And just flour is how you make a roux. You don't need to do chickpea flour. Right. <laughs> just good old-purpose, you know, flour. <laughs> No, but I told her, I said, I'm, I said, I know what I'm going to say since you won't give me anything I'm telling on you. So that I had okay. to do that. Okay. So now, um, today was a very significant day for you all, switching gears. Um, you've already gone to see Ruth Bader Ginsburg lying in state at the Capitol. Mm-hmm. Um, and I just want us to center for a minute about the importance of this moment, um, what yep. this what the Supreme Court means and why it's so important for all of us, not just to know who RBG was, as I see here with one of these is Harriet and one of these is RBG um, Mm -hmm. by this company, Awe-Inspired, who also is making you one (laughs) and they're making a common one. Yeah, women heroes. But as we sit here thinking about her heroic career, why do people need to know about Ruth Bader Ginsburg? Well, I mean, that's how I... um that's how I started today. Yeah. And, um, and what it's been in addition to everything else with 39 days before the election, where my head has been, um, which is thinking about the importance of the United States Supreme court and the leaders, 
um, of our nation who have sat on that court and changed the trajectory of our lives. Um, the inspiration for me to become a lawyer was Thurgood Marshall, um, who, of course, you know, trailed the way through his work up until being on the court for Brown v. Board of Education, which desegregated the schools of America. Um, I think of Ruth Bader Ginsburg similarly. You know, I, it's interesting because I think that um, there's a lot of coverage that has been about the fame that she received late in life, but not understanding that her fame started when she was in her teenage years in terms of the work she had been doing every step of the way to lay the foundation for equality for all people, but with her, her focus having been an emphasis on women. And, and you know, and when I was there this morning while she lay in, she, she lay in state in the United States Capitol, I'm the only black woman in the United States Senate. Yeah. Um, and only the second in the history of the United States Senate to have been elected. I'm looking at this casket laying in state. She is the first woman, the first woman ever. Yeah. And, um, and she was, you know, she was a petite woman. And there was such an inverse relationship between her size and her stature mm -hmm. in terms of everything she achieved on, you know, in our ongoing fight for civil rights. I think if you look at her jurisprudence, if you, if you look at the way she set up the cases along the way, it was very much of that same methodology that Thurgood, along with Charles Hamilton Houston and Constance Baker Motley, how they were thinking about how you set up precedent one block at a time. Um, I can't help but think that, um, she wanted to live much longer, yeah, but that she probably held on longer than most could because of that sheer determination sitting there. It was a very somber, it was a very somber way to start the day. Um, I, I looked at her casket and I thought, you know, she earned the right to rest in peace. Hmm. Right to rest in peace. And yet we find ourselves in this position where the same day that we found out she was no longer with us, you know, Donald Trump was tweeting about what he planned to do with his nominee. Um, you just, of course, mentioned uh, Constance Baker Motley. Now you did in your acceptance speech as well um, for mm -hmm. the vice presidency. Do you, who do you think, um, because we also know that uh, Vice President Biden has committed to nominating a black woman to the Supreme Court. Um, when you think of some of the women who have inspired you, some may who be your may be your peers. Some of us thought you would be a great Supreme Court justice. Well, we want you to have all the jobs, apparently. But what are you what are you thinking about? You know, who would be some great women, uh, black women that could serve in that role? To the extent well, right, there there are so, there are so many. I'm not going to name any names. Yeah. That that Joe Biden will will create his list at the appropriate time, but. Um, but there are many names of women I have worked with over the years um, who each have been trailblazers. And the thing that I know about um, black women, whatever we do, but in particular in, in the profession of law, because so many have been the first, is that when you are looking at, at, at who we're talking about, you will see some of the, the, the brightest minds in law 
as well as some of the people who are, who are the most civic minded, um, people who, who have lived a life of service mm-hmm. and, and all in the fight for justice for everybody. And um, so, you know, you and I have talked about this many times. You know, many of us may be the first to do many things, but there are a whole lot of us. Yeah. Um, I, 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 um, I think that people mean it as a compliment sometimes when they look at you and, and say, you know, oh, you're special. I think they may mean it as a compliment, but um, I think there's another side to that, which is to suggest you're the only one like you. Mm-hmm. And therefore that you are alone. And as I mentor young women and men, I, I, I remind them that no, don't ever let anyone make you feel alone. There are a lot of us. We come with people and, um, and, and the pie is big enough so that we should be in every slice of that pie and occupying every region of, of our society and roles of leadership. So there are a lot of black women is, my, is a long way of saying there are a lot of black women. Yeah. who have earned the right to be on a list um, to be the next Supreme Court justice and to fill um, the shoes of, of the legacy of Thurgood Marshall and Ruth Bader Ginsburg and so many others. I love that. I think, um, too, you know, again, um, as the chairman talked about, we're in the middle of so many pandemics. And we know another one, uh, you know, after mourning the loss of Breonna Taylor for uh, over 100 days, almost 200 days, um, now, just wondering how you felt, because so often you're asked to respond without, how did you feel as a Black woman, woman um, hearing about the charges in the Breonna Taylor case or, at least, or the lack thereof? It was, a, you know, it was a gut punch in many ways. Um, I, have, I have been um, in conversations with her mother, Tamika Palmer, for, for months now, you know, and one, the first conversation that I had with her um, when she talked about her daughter and therefore the life that has now been lost. Brianna Taylor was a caregiver in her spirit and her nature. She cared for her grandmother. She cared for her family. She cared for her community. She cared for society. She cared for people she had never met, which is why she wanted to be as her life dream a nurse, but decided to first become an EMT so she could respond to the call on the street so that she would understand what was happening in the streets, on the ground, and be able to respond immediately. That's why she became an EMT with a life's purpose and dream of becoming a nurse. And she was beautiful inside and out in every way. And, um, and it is tragic. And, you know, I, I, I have been saying from the beginning that, that her life deserves to be valued and to be um, honored. And she and her family and, and, and the rest of the community deserve justice. They deserve justice then, they deserve justice today, and they deserve justice tomorrow. And, you know, it's, it's now become cliche, but, but it just remains true. I will not stop speaking her name. And speaking of speaking her name, the attorney general in the state, Daniel Cameron, did just that at the RNC. He spoke her name, and 
then there are these charges for bullets shot into the home of her white neighbor, but not bullets um, that killed Breonna Taylor. Given the fact that you were a prosecutor, would you have pressed charges against the three officers involved in the case? Well, I don't I don't know all the details of the case, but I will say this, that there needs to be transparency about what happened and that family and that community deserve justice. Yeah. And um, and that's just the bottom line. So speaking of justice, I know that um, you attended uh, at least one, one that I know of, one where, one where you were caught, a BLM protest, um, kind of incognito, and you went to um, just stand in solidarity. How does that um, compare, right, to the way Donald Trump talks about Black Lives Matter as a terrorist organization? What do you say back to um, maybe some of his supporters and folks who are confused about what BLM it actually stands for what it means, especially with um, given the fact that Patrice and Opal and Alicia were on the front uh, page or the cover of Time magazine as um, 100 women or 100 people mm-hmm. now are changing mm-hmm. the world. Um, well, and good for Time magazine for doing that because they have. And the brilliance and the impact of Black Lives Matter um, and their brilliance in, in conceiving it, um, history is going to show was um, an inflection point in the ongoing fight for justice, to your point, and to reform the criminal justice system and America's criminal justice system. I actually believe, as a former prosecutor, that Black Lives Matter has been the most significant agent for change um, within the criminal justice system because it has been a counterforce to the force within the system that is so grounded in, in, in status quo and in its own traditions, many of which have been harmful and, um, and have been, been discriminatory in the way that they've been enforced. Um, so being there, you know, being at the protest, I mean, I grew up in protest. My, my parents were active in the civil rights movement, as you know, so it's nothing new. I, I've been in, in marches since I was in a stroller. Um, when I was at Howard University, I was protesting against apartheid. I mean, it's, it's nothing new for me. But being there um, at this point in terms of, uh, you know, honoring the life of George Floyd and, and Brianna and Ahmaud Arbery and, you know, we can go down the list. Sadly, a long list. Um, it is about, I think, a community and 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 the country speaking Donald out, understanding that nothing that we have achieved that has been about progress in this country has come without a fight. Mm-hmm. Nothing mm-hmm. that we have achieved in our country that has been about progress, in particular around civil rights, has come without a fight. And and so I always am going to interpret these protests as an essential component of evolution in our country, as an essential component or mark of a real democracy, and as necessary, as necessary. Um, The people's voices must be heard. And it is often the people who must speak to get their government to do what it is supposed to do, but may not do naturally unless the people speak loudly and obviously peacefully, um, but speak loudly. 
you mentioned the name of George Floyd. And of course, um, you led the charge uh, with Senator Booker and the Congressional Black Caucus on the mm -hmm. House side for the George Floyd Justice in Policing Act. Is that mm -hmm. a bill, um, Senator Harris, that you would urge Vice President Biden to sign into law in his first 30 days, for example, as president? So the Justice and Policing Act, and yes, Cory Booker, my brother in the Senate, um, we led it on the Senate side, and but but then got a lot of senators to sign on to it. In the House side, our fellow members of the Congressional Black Caucus and um, brought together a bipartisan group to yeah. support it. And it does a number of things, which Joe Biden has, without any um, hesitation, said that that he will do in, in our administration, um, including banning chokeholds and carotid holes. Um, let's be clear, George Floyd would be alive today if those carotid and chokeholds had been banned, um, creating a national standard for use of force. Why is that important? Well, because where there have been cases that might be able to go to court where an officer has used excessive force, it is often the case that the standard that's applied makes it difficult to actually prove the case and win the case. Because here's what happens. In many jurisdictions, in the case of excessive force, the question that is asked is, was the use of force reasonable? And as we know, you can reason away just about anything. So what we're saying is no, the just, the fair question to ask is, was that use of force necessary? And so that's about changing the standard. One of the things that Joe Biden feels strongly about is we need to have basically a, a national um, center where we are keeping the names and keeping track of police officers who have broken the rules and broken the law. Why? Well, because again, so many of the cases don't go to court because um, they, they may not be provable based on the standard or, or there's a prosecutor who is unwilling to do it. So, but they will often go by through administrative hearing, right? And so it may result in that police officer being fired. But because there's been no court record of it and no established record of it, that officer can move to another jurisdiction and apply to another police department and that record doesn't follow them. So we're saying there needs to be a central database with this information so we can keep track of these things. Um, we will eliminate the death penalty. We will eliminate private prisons, um, eliminate cash bail. I've been a leader on that in the United States Senate. Cash bail is not only a criminal justice issue, it's an economic justice issue, meaning people are sitting in jail because they don't have the money to get out. Meanwhile, the person who has been charged with the same offense and has money is out exercising free will and liberty, right? Ex out there able to walk the streets. So that's an economic justice issue. So we'll, we'll get rid of cash bail as well. So these are some of the things we'll do. Um, speaking of economic justice, um, Donald Trump wrote out today a $500 billion economic justice plan for Black Americans. What I think is important is for people to hear some of your commitments, um, some of Joe Biden's commitments to black folks as people try to say, right, um, it's the lesser of two evils again. It's the same thing we heard in 2016. How can you like just refute that outright? 
How is this not the lesser of two evils after 200,000 and counting people have died from coronavirus in this country at the hands of this irresponsible president? That's not NAACP's words. Those are mine. Um, But I do want to point that out. When you talk about what's happened with COVID and the response that you all would have, when you talk about his $500 billion plan and the response that you all would have um, specifically to Black people, thinking about uh, Alicia's Black to the Future, Black Agenda 2020, thinking about Ice Cube's contract with Black America. Mm-hmm. Some people are saying, in order to turn out, Senator Harris, I need to know what you're going to do for me. What do I get in return for my vote? How do you respond to yeah, that? I, th- that's absolutely right. And people have a right to have their vote earned. Mm-hmm. Nobody should be saying to any anybody, and especially to our folks, that you're supposed to vote for us. Um, that's insulting. We need to earn the vote. And so let's talk about the economic piece. I'm not going to even go into the fact that, by the way, Donald Trump refuses to say Black Lives Matter. Right. And Joe Biden has said it. (laughs) But let's put that aside. Um, In terms of the proactive, right, earning the vote. Um, One of the things that is very important to Joe Biden and certainly to, to all of us is that we understand, you know, when you talk about criminal justice, we've got to reimagine public safety and how we achieve it. And here's what I mean. If you go into any upper middle class neighborhood in America, you will not see the kind of police presence you see in other neighborhoods. But what you will see are well-funded public schools. What you will see are high rates of home ownership. What you will see are small businesses that have access to capital. What you will see are communities that can get health care and afford it, including mental health care. What you will see are, are people who have jobs that allow them to get through the end of the month without worrying about whether they can feed their children. Healthy communities are safe communities. So it is an outdated way of thinking to think the way you create safe communities is only by putting more police officers on the streets. You want to see safe communities? Invest in the health and well-being of those communities. So I say all that to say that part of what our plan is, is about $150 billion going into low-interest loans and access to capital with an emphasis on Black-owned and minority-owned businesses. We know that our small businesses are part of the lifeblood of our communities. I was just in Detroit, Seven Mile Road, right? It, it, you can go to any city in America and see, you know, usually it's called MLK Way, <laughs> but you will see all of those businesses and what they are in terms of those, those leaders being not only business leaders, but civic leaders and community leaders, right? So the infusion of capital and access to capital for our small businesses, knowing and wherever they are, and I'm joking about MLK way, you know what I'm saying, right? But that, no, that, that it is, <laughs> say what? I said, no, that's real though. Except for, well, yeah, from is gentrified now, but it's real. Right. But where, because we have such great entrepreneurial spirit and it's, it is not the lack of that. It is the lack of access to capital. That has held those businesses back. So access to capital, home ownership. I mean, we know in terms of the history of our country, 
Nobody got 40 acres and a mule. We had a history of redlining. We had a history of, you know, after World War II, when all those mostly men came back from war, the government said, we're going to make this greatest generation a strong middle class. And they gave um, federal support for people to engage in home ownership. But black service men were pretty much left out. Right. So when you saw a real infusion of capital around home ownership, the black community didn't get that either. And so we also know that home ownership is one of the the greatest sources of wealth of any American family and also the greatest sources of intergenerational wealth, meaning grandmother passes it down to the children who pass it down to the grandchildren. So that's going to be about a fifteen thousand dollar tax credit to help first time homeowners um, put for down payment or closing costs to buy a home. Title I funding, tripling Title I funding, so that Title I funding is about schools, and in particular, schools that are in low tax base communities, which are the least funded and tend to have the most of our children. Um, it's about saying that we need to deal with access to health care, one of the biggest impediments to allowing people to not only be healthy, but to, to thrive. Donald Trump is in court right now in the Supreme Court with his boy, Bill Barr, yeah. trying to get rid of the Affordable Care Act that President Obama, together with Vice President Biden, created that brought health care to over 20 million people, including saying that you cannot ban people with pre-existing conditions like diabetes high blood pressure, breast cancer. You cannot ban them from access to health care. This is what President Obama did as one of the most significant public policy initiatives since the creation of Social Security. And Donald Trump has been trying to get rid of it since the day he got in office, like he's been trying to get rid of everything that President Obama, together with Vice President Biden, created. Yeah. On the other hand, and in the middle of a public health pandemic that, by the way, three black people are three times as likely to contract, twice as likely to die from. On the other hand, you have Joe Biden, who is saying we are going to increase access to health care and make sure that we address the fact that we also need to deal with mental health care. You know, the way I think about it, Angela, is the problem with what we've done with health care is we act as though the body starts from the neck down. Mm-hmm. Instead, it's also dealing with the health care from the neck up. Yeah. And that includes all of the trauma, all of the undiagnosed and untreated trauma that are barriers to people with incredible capacity actually reaching that capacity. Mm-hmm. So these are some of the things that we will do um, that are about earning the vote yeah. of folks. And, um, and that's on top of, as you said, appointing the first black woman, nominating the first black woman to the United States Supreme Court. That's on top of what we talked about in terms of criminal justice reform. That's on top of all that we need to do around environmental um, issues, including I was just in Flint, what we need to do to invest in healthy water and, and infrastructure and building up and repairing infrastructure, often which is the most dilapidated in our communities, including our schools and public schools, which are falling apart. So in the middle of the COVID virus, we're in the winter months, 
they, they can't bring the kids inside because the ventilation is so bad and we won't let them drink from a water fountain because that's toxic water. We need to in, in, improve infrastructure. That's also about jobs. These are the things that we will do. And so I do believe that is a, 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 a very, very strong foundation of what is necessary, not only to get us to the next phase and to, to build back better, as we say, but also to acknowledge the inequities that have long existed that need to be addressed. The last thing uh, that, that I would love from you uh, it quickly is um, I talked to one of your former co-chairs of your campaign, Louisiana State Rep. Ted James earlier, mm -hmm. he talked about the first time he talked to you, how he felt homegirl vibes. Mm -hmm. um, and as we know, for whatever reason, there's this targeting of black men by the Trump campaign um, with yeah. a lot of information about you that's not even true. So as you um, think about your homegirl vibes, and one of my favorite things about you is not only how well you listen to us, but when you come back, even if I'm hollering um, or whatever, it's always this calm, even killed. This is just what we got to do. So if you had yeah. a moment to talk to young black men, um, mm -hmm. especially young black men, about why it is so important this time that they vote and, you know, vote and participate, vote and engage others. What would you say to them if this was your message that was going to go straight into their homes? You know, um, first of all, I'll say this. There is not a black woman or man who gives birth to their son who from the first time they hold that baby in their hand, do not start praying that the life of that child through his life will be safe and respected and valued. And that's a reality in America. We need leadership in our country who respects and values that life from the day he is born through the course of his life in a way that understands and respects the role historically that he has played to help build this nation and the role he plays around the world in his role of leadership. And we have so many examples of that. That, Donald, that, that, that history, which by the way, Donald Trump is trying to ignore or erase, see the 619 project, 1619, right? So um, there is that. On the issue of voting, I would say this, and this is to everybody. You know, from forever, they've been denying us the right to vote. That's why John Lewis shed his blood on the Edmund Pettus Bridge. They have put on place poll taxes. They have tried to purge the voter rolls. We'd be talking about Governor Stacey Abrams if the kinds of obstacles that they have tried to put in the way of black people had not been there. You can look at after Shelby v. Holder, the United States gutted, the Supreme Court gutted the Voting Rights Act and almost two dozen states put in place laws that were designed to 
suppress or intimidate black people from voting, so much so that in North Carolina, a court of appeals said that that law was passed by that legislature with, quote, surgical precision to make it difficult for black people to vote. And I bring all of this up, Angela, when you ask about voting, to say this. It is critical that we honor the ancestors, of which John Lewis is now one, who shed their blood for our right to vote. And for that reason that we vote. It is critical we vote because everything is on the line from health care to access to capital to the criminal justice system. And the decision we make about who will be the next president of the United States will determine the outcome of all of those issues. And I would say as the third point this. Let us sit back for a minute and ask a question, which is, why are so many powerful people trying to make it so difficult for us to vote? Why is it that so many powerful people are trying to make us confused about how we can vote, where we can vote, if we can vote? And I'll say the answer is probably obvious because they know when we vote, things change. They know the power of our vote. They know the power of our vote. And so in this election, let us not let anyone take our power from us. They know the power of our vote. We know the power of our vote. So let's use it. Let's use it. We're all my children of the light, born in the sinning, but steady striving to do right. My people are warriors, all we know is to fight. Pray, they see God in everything I write here. Yeah.